All right, welcome back to the Tomb Visions interview series. You are now listening to the second part of the Benjamin D. Duval interview. On this second instalment, Ben discusses his work with Merseyside Schools, being invited to perform at the Stuart Lee ATP, the recording of the forthcoming ex-Easter Island Head album, Norther, and his first touring experiences as a member of Liverpool DIY legends, Stig Noise Sound System. We also look at his studio-only duo Land Trance in more detail, including the making of their debut record First Seance, the recording of Embassy Nocturnes, and the pair's recent collaboration with Philip Jett, before finally wrapping things up with some illuminating and pretty hilarious answers to the regular pop quiz. So there's been three large ensembles. There's been Nottingham, Salford and Denmark now and um but it's sort of an <laughs> I would call it an un- unofficial fourth because you've done a lot of work with um year six students in Merseyside right yeah we've we've done we've actually done three different education projects at this point and two of them were with year six kids in in yeah in Merseyside and the most recent one which was last year was with year eight pupils um, in Newcastle and with GCSE music students in Newcastle as well. Wow. So what's what's the setup? So that all came about through um, this incredible charity that's based in the Northeast uh, called Hand Of, and that's um, run by two amazing people that uh louise and rob and um they specialize in sort of facilitating um projects educational projects that bring artists in into contact with with schools often schools that uh are from quite a sort of broad uh sort of demographic you know some of them might be quite like low income areas you know where the schools are and things like that and um basically they've worked with us to build these projects that are a, they kind of both are a bit of a crash course in experimental music making and mm-hmm. it ties in with whatever the kids are sort of studying in school as well and it all go along a theme so the liverpool ones for example one of them was called the the atlantic the mersey and me and it was looking at um in the second world war there was this um had sort of secret bunker in liverpool called western approaches which is where the Battle of the Atlantic was was kind of fought from. So it's like a war room, you know, like a command centre, like kind of buried deep beneath the pool city centre. It's a museum now. And we were based there, and we also went to the Central Library and, like, um, got hold of this diary of a nine-year-old girl uh, called Pauline who lived in during the Blitz and wrote a diary about it. And we drew on a few other sources as well. 
and we kind of built the series of workshops culminating in in a performance and you know these encompassed all sorts of different games and um kind of interacting with these source texts and stuff always trying to make it fun and engaging and 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 also treat treat it with seriousness as well you know um but it was really interesting so you know the piece we ended up making for example using the girl's diary you know pauline wrote in her diary oh i was having a music lesson today and it was interrupted by you know uh, a bombing raid so we had to go into the shelter so it was like okay what piece was she rehearsing and it was something like Sonata Number no. One by a composer whose name I forgot. Um, but anyway, so you know, we were like, okay, there's a reference to music. Let's let's take a bit of that piece, and then what are we making music with the kids with? We've got glockenspiels, we've got like, you know, uh, slide whistles, uh, various percussion things. Let's let's kind of extrapolate a bit of that piece and turn that into something. And then for other things, you know, you can work more in the realm of like sound effects and musical, almost like musical theater. You know, we had kids walking around the auditorium with uh, portable tape players and on the tape player was like a sonar sound. So they were kind of like our submarines, you know, Amazing. going around and, you know, the war room where we were, based you know they were using a lot of typewriters and telephones going off and stuff so it's like okay let's incorporate those sounds and make them musical something i was particularly proud of was that we had we got a load of kazoos and we got the kids to um spell out their names in the nato phonetic alphabet you know so like alpha bravo charlie you know whatever like so we got them to spell their names out like that and just keep repeating that. And, you know, when you've got when you're speaking it through a kazoo, it sort of sounds a little bit like a radio voice or, you know, it doesn't take much of a leap of the imagination to sort of see it as communication. And when you've got like 40 kids all saying their own name, they've got something that connects them to it, which is their own name. They've got a process that's really simple to understand. You've just got to keep repeating this. And they've got an <laughs> instrument that, you know, is uh has no barrier to entry you know yeah. anyone anyone can play it you know so that for me was like a good example of how and and you know it, it ended up sounding really effective it sounds like a load of radio chatter happening against this we sampled the typewriter we have typewriter going round and round providing a rhythm you know and in other places we had sound of air raid sirens and we were doing some allen key guitar against that and the kids were playing like fire bells that are salvaged from a derelict building like load of fire alarm bells just on the floor they were jangling them setting off party poppers uh you know just you get really creative with it and it's great because you they're the kids can get really into it and really game. And even when they're not, the, the challenge is to kind of gamify the whole process. Yeah. You have to make a game of it, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of incredible. You'll get kids who are, you know, pretty naughty or antisocial or, 
just don't want to be there or whatever. But if you can find a special role for them, you know, you say, listen, you're not allowed to run around right now, but there's going to be five minutes when <laughs> it's going to be you center stage with all these fire alarm bells around you and you can go absolutely wild on them, you know? <laughs> and like for some kids, that's that, that gets them that gets them to pay attention and they get their moment in, in the spotlight. It's wonderful. I mean, it's like absolutely life affirming work mm, and, and really, like really interesting. Yeah, it is like an extension of large ensemble stuff, but you're also having to devise workshops and lessons mm-hmm. like constantly, you know, Yeah, it's very intensive work. Is, is there, is, so is there any future projects with, um, with schools coming up that you're going to be doing i think we will almost certainly work with hand of again like we have such a like mm-hmm. fruitful relationship with them we've worked with them three times now obviously it's in their interest to work with a whole range of artists you know there's a lot more people out there than just us but we really hope to because yeah we've discussed at some point years down the line when we've amassed enough stuff you know we'll probably have an amazing record in there mm, yeah uh, you know um and we, we you know we've already talked about the title music with children uh like <laughs> i just think that could really that could sound fantastic yeah you know? it goes uh, in the function functionalness of the title as well it's totally <laughs> totally in fitting with the with the with the rest of the record titles as well <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's greatly rewarding experience working with kids. Yeah, sounds really, really inspiring. Um, another thing that you that's really inspiring about X Easter Ironhead is just to just to see just the the breadth of different and unique venue spaces that you get to play in. Um, you've played from everywhere, from Poland's Pardon to Two, the uh, Guess Who Festival, which I think is in Utrecht. Utrecht, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mean quite established um, uh, avant-garde music venues and festivals, um, but you've also played in a library on the island. Of Iona. Iona. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so who who handles these bookings and and how? I mean, you've a lot. You've explained a, a bit of this that a lot of it's kind of happenstance and you sort yeah. of. But are, are you the sort of main booker? Do you handle yeah. handling the booking for the projects and, and, and how much stuff are you sort of actively seeking out rather than it coming to you? Well, I've sought out a fair bit since, you know, we came out of the pandemic, mm. like, you know, because it's just we haven't worked with people for, for a, a, while, a, a good couple of years. Um, and we played some new places, you know, we, we played Cambridge. I, I reached, I just, you know, I just go on twitter or instagram and see who's putting on the interesting gigs or has put on people that we've also played with or whatever um and then i get in touch with them so that's how cambridge came about absolutely lovely bunch of people who do stuff under the name crushing death and grief (laughs) great name that's a great name um you know i'd never met them before and i just introduced myself and said we'd, we'd love to we'd love to play in Cambridge and um, feel like if we did, maybe we'd want to speak to you about it. And they were really receptive to that. But 
so much stuff, as you say, is is happenstance. Like, you know, the guess who that came about through? We supported James Holden in London. We mm. got put together on a bill. He caught some of our set, loved it, and then he got invited to curate a stage at the Guess Who. So he picked us. So again, it it just feels like that's kind of happenstance, you mm. know. Um, the uh, the Iona gig that was just an old friend of ours who had ended up moving out there. He was working in a hotel on Iona, which has no cars on it. It's just off the tip of Mull. It's where um, Christianity apparently landed in the British Isles. Um, it has yeah, 126 residents, tiny islands, very like spiritual place. And our friend Luke was living there and just said, wouldn't it be great if you came and played? You know, there's a library here and where you can do gigs. Like, I think um, there'd been one gig before that and King Creosote had played a gig there. And uh, yeah, it was just like, okay, let's, uh, let's do it. You know, <laughs> that was ridiculous because we drove all the way from Liverpool to Glasgow Um when we got to Glasgow, we loaded all the band's gear up five flights of stairs into the flat we were staying in because we were worried about getting robbed from the car. Um, then, you know, it was a good couple of hours drive from Glasgow the next day to get on a ferry, which takes you to Mull. You then drive across Mull, which takes a while. Then you have to get another ferry to Iona. We had all the gear on a hotel luggage trolley because you can't take the car over. And we did all this and ended up playing about a 22-minute set because we were being incredibly precious at that point of, like, we are doing Malik Guitars 3 at this moment as a band. And, like, that is that is where the band is at. And, yeah. like, you know, that's in a particular tuning and particular approach. And, you know, when that's that's just what we're doing right now which seems so indulgent to be honest to make such a long journey to then fiercely stick to your guns and play this really short set and it's like if you've gone all that way just just do just do something more you know <laughs> so in retrospect i think to be honest that was it was a great gig you know and there was like a lot of the island came to see us and then we had a great disco afterwards and I stayed up all night. It was brilliant. But like, you know, I remember after that gig, uh, John saying, you know, maybe like we should do something a bit more active than like a 12 minute drone to conclude our set, which is only 22 minutes anyway, <laughs> you know? So let's, let's maybe think about that and just think let's do something like a little bit more exciting just to, you know, there's nothing wrong with actually being, you know, entertaining, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, which needed to be said, I think. And that was a point where it was like, okay, it's, it's all well and good being very strict and adhering to some kind of principle, but that's a long way to go to play for a very short amount of time. Yeah. yeah. Were the audience receptive? Yeah, they loved it. And um, I re the highlight of that trip was the disco afterwards, which was just incredible. 
Uh, <laughs> everyone had an amazing time. Well, it was absolutely wild. And uh, yeah, there's no there's no police on Iona. Um, wow. So yeah, it was it was great. Um, yeah, but you know, like so many things, just I think it's by virtue of the band having its own thing going on. I know every band's got their own thing going on, but you know, I think that the unique setup we've got this prepared guitar thing, the the whole thing we do, you know, has meant that we've been very fortunate in just having people reach out to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the date you mentioned in Poland was people reaching out to us because mm-hmm. they'd heard us somewhere and thought, yeah, we'd like to get them over, you mm-hmm. know. So there's been there's been a lot of that, um, and and you know probably the greatest coup was landing AT, the ATP festival. Um, Stuart Lee was curating, and again that came about because I was working on the reception desk at the concert hall he was playing in that night, and he came into the stage door with a bag of records under his arm from Probe Records in Liverpool. So naturally, you're going to ask, what what's in your bag? You know, I want to mm. see what records he's been buying. So we got talking about music. And I had the latest Exeaster LP um, delivered to my work because I knew I wasn't going to be at home. So I had boxes of our new LP sat under the desk. So when we stopped chatting, I just said, oh, here, have one, have one of my band's records. You might like it. I gave him that and then we kind of struck up a correspondence and then he got offered the chance to curate ATP and stuck us on the bill. So again, it was just like chance meeting of him, you know, through my day job and just just see, you know, the records just happened to be there and it wasn't like uh, opportunistically uh, cynical we mm-hmm. just had a really nice chat about music we were into for about 20 minutes. Remember, we, we were both really excited about um, Richard Dawson's album. I can't remember which one just come out. We were talking about that a lot. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, it's like, hang on, my records are here. I think he might like it. I'd like to give him one of these because I think he'll like it. You know, <laughs> and it uh, it worked out. Did you give him a bit of a um, an, in, a, an introductory, like... Uh... Did you explain? Yeah. Did you explain the the project I, to the I, band? I think I think I think I gave him a, a really succinct version because you don't exactly. want to. Yeah, you don't want to take the piss. And, no. Um, and yeah, he he's he's been a real nice. You know, he's been a great support of our music. I just saw uh, he publishes a newsletter fairly regularly, and he always recommends gigs to go to. And he's taken the time to gather together all our tour dates put them in an email and send them out to his fans, you know, along with loads of other good recommendations. It's just like, that's really nice. (laughs) I really appreciate that, you know? Mm, Wow. Wow. The Stuart Lee ATP was a bit controversial because it sort of, did it sort of disintegrate mid-weekend? That was sort of the last one. It Um, was, wasn't it? Yeah, because the drive like Jehu one was the weekend after and that never happened, I think. Yeah. Um, it was the only ATP I'd I'd ever been to. In fact, that any of us had ever been to, and it made me wish I'd gone to loads more. I just wasn't. I just it just never occurred to me to go. Um, loved the format, and 
the lineup was incredible. You know, like uh, didn't get to see the Necks, who are one of my favorite bands. They were on mm-hmm. while we were sound checking, so that was a bit gutting. But like, you know, being stood in the lunch queue backstage behind like Rocky Erickson was a bit <laughs> mad. You know, yeah. like that was crazy. And you know, the the performances that really made an impact there was um, boredoms were incredible. Mm-hmm. Like. Just a band I'd heard so much about and people had often compared us to them and whenever I'd listened to them, I just couldn't see the comparison at all. And I still think sonically we don't sound anything like them. But their show at ATP opened with like, they were basically just doing sort of scraped, these suspended scraped metal poles and... They were just sort of exciting sounds out of them for about 15 minutes before, like, a kick drum came in, doing something very oblique. But the patience and the total belief that they had in this first 15 minutes, it was so uncompromising Mm. and interesting and bold, and that made a huge impression on us. I remember, like, we came back from that festival with just, like, the poise with which, like, boredoms began their gig and i mean the whole show was really incredible culminated in they had like a bass amp on its back and there was a guy just feeding like uh crockery into the speaker which was just being (laughs) like smashed to pieces and and thrown about by this bass speaker and it was just it was brilliant but yeah there was something in the their performance really made an impact and then um Sun Ra Orchestra uh, brought me to tears, and not for the first time. Um, mm. Just incredible. I can't really describe uh, how good they were. So, yeah, that was it. Was boss. We got to see loads of great music. The X played, they were amazing. We'd done a gig with them the night before in Bristol, before the festival, and they really smashed it. And, you know, we saw The Fall, who weren't very good, but I got to see The Fall, and on balance, they are very good, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but that night, it was it was like, oh wow, there's a very ill-looking Marky Smith bollock in his band. Okay, well <laughs> I've seen the fall now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's um it's interesting that you said that you've not been to any ATPs. I mean, I went to uh, those first the, the first run, the first six or seven years of the festival were sort of pretty much unbeatable. They were like. On a on a on a on a global level, I think as well. I think a lot yeah, of people would agree with that. Incredible lineups. Yeah, I mean they they I I wouldn't be a musician, I don't think, if I hadn't seen some of the things I saw at those festivals. Um, but you did sort of uh, invoke an ATP tradition, which was you you played outside your chalet, which is a move that Lightning Bolt famously did. Um, yeah. I think there's been a few others that have done similar things. I think Lightning Bolt were, was. I, I think you, you and Lightning Bolt are the ones that people would remember. <laughs> How was that? I loved it, and I, like, yeah, that came, we we had we knew that people had done that kind yeah. of thing because various mates of ours have been to the festival and had said that people had done like, yeah, chalet gigs and stuff, and. Um, it was actually Ben Riles, who is based in Manchester and 
promoted Partisan Collective and other people and played in a large ensemble with us. He, just before the festival, said, oh, I'll be there, I'll see you guys there, great. But also, because this was just after we'd done the Salford Lodge Ensemble for the first time. Yeah, he said, I'm going to be there. How about, do you want to do a, a balcony gig? Because there's no chalets on that site. It was all kind of blocked. So he suggested we do a balcony gig um, and offered up his accommodation for it. So thank you, Ben Riles, you wonderful human. Um, Great dude. And, and yeah, so we did it on the Sunday morning. We were just like, yeah, let's do it. You know, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And it'll be great. And we want to play. You know, we'd done it. We'd played on the Friday night. So we played as soon as we got there. Yeah. And there was about 800 people crammed into the room and there was people that couldn't get in. So we knew there was people that wanted to see us that hadn't. And we also thought our performance was good, but it could have been better. And we were like, you know, let's just try and let's just try and really bring this one home, you know. Uh, and yeah, so Ben kindly offered us the use of his uh, balcony and the mains power from the accommodation, and we just set up on the Sunday morning. And yeah, I remember definitely I was quite hungover. Possibly Ben was too. Um, and we sort of spread the word um, uh, sort of the night before. And then we just set up and we played um, most of our... Maybe we did the whole set again, to be honest. I, I feel like we maybe... I, do you know what we did? We cut out the really slow Allen Key piece that's in the middle of 22 Strings, the title track. We just kept it to the rhythmic numbers. Uh and it went great. And I feel like off the back of that ATP, we probably like doubled our fan base overnight. Like, really? it was just, and people still come up to us at shows and say, oh, I saw that balcony show. And, or like, oh, I heard you because my friend saw you do that balcony show. So I think it was a, a fucking good idea <laughs> doing that, well to done, be honest. Man. Yeah, it was just yeah. great, you know, and the, the videos that came out of it looked really good. It also sounded great because the, the sound was just bouncing off the, the housing blocks on the holiday camp in a really nice way. And it travelled for ages. Like, there were people way at the other end of it who, considering we weren't using a PA, we were just using our amps. Um, and no amplification on the drums or percussion. It carried for, for miles. Like So, yeah, it was great. Amazing. So, th there is a new record in the works. Um, yeah. You 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 re did you record that during the pandemic? No, we recorded it. Um, we recorded it. I uh, actually struggling to remember when we actually started it. It was last July, so mm -hmm. July twenty twenty two. Fairly recent it. then. Yeah, but the material has been kind of gestating for a long time. Some mm -hmm. of it's like getting on for five six years old like since we finished the last record a fair amount of the ideas for it came from the large ensemble stuff that we did in denmark and in salford like mm -hmm. particularly the use of the handbells and the um the knitting needle twangs that we were talking about earlier and stuff that came out of um doing the salford large ensemble and yeah we recorded that it's uh, well 
a bit about it. It's called Norther. Um, we're just in the process of figuring out a label for that. It looks like we've got something sorted, but it's not confirmed yet, so I, I won't say anything. Um, but uh, yeah, it's six pieces. It's about 40 minutes long, and we've been playing it out live for uh, this year and a little bit last year as well. We've got some more gigs coming up. It's a four piece, myself, Ben, John and Andy. Um, we recorded it here in our in our house. Andy's got a studio in the basement. Um, and is um, has become a really incredible engineer and producer. And so we decided to do it, you know, in house. It's the first time we've ever done it, recorded it with just the members of the band. Other records, we've always worked with a, an outside engineer. Um, and the big difference for this one is that we've we've stopped using amplifiers. We, we've just we're just di going direct with the guitars now. They're just di'd because the sounds we were using are, are so clean, mm -hmm. and that we actually were finding the sort of grain and grit of the amplifiers wasn't serving the sound how we wanted. So that made for a very interesting change because it used to be that the records were all about the tones swimming and combining in the room and building up this kind of thick cloud of, of overtones and stuff. And actually, the, the things we've been writing and the techniques we're using are, are more lent to this this newer approach where it's not really about the room sound, it's about the direct sound of the guitars. Um, so it means that we've not had many open mics on this, which means that we're able to kind of talk while we're recording it and like encourage each other and, and you know, guide the piece as we're playing it which was very interesting, you know. Um, I think that the, the way of looking at this one is our, all our previous records have all been absolute documentary. You know, I think on the last album there was one overdub. Like, I think there was like one cymbal wash overdub and the rest was just nailing a good live take. And here's what it sounds like in the room. Here's what it's going to sound like on stage. That's the record. Like, total authenticity if you want albini-esque uh, yeah <clears throat> and then for this one we've still kept it like true to well this is pretty much what you're going to hear on stage but we've we've tackled it more in layers um it's like being built up that way rather than strictly as this totally live thing and also we've expanded the sort of sonic palette of it I, so I, i'm really proud of all our records but i i feel like for a lot of people we're first and foremost a live band and most people prefer us that way and sitting at home with the records is an occasional pleasure perhaps of course there are people that really enjoy the records and write to us and tell us about it and stuff and we're really grateful for that but I think with this record with Norther where we've made something that, that works 
irregardless of how the sounds are made. So you can listen to it and you don't need to know that this is done on prepared guitars or what have you. Like the actual compositions and the mix and the instrumentation and our thinking and our tastes this time round, I think have made for like a really full, beautiful album, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I've I've had the great privilege of of hearing hearing it because uh, you shared it with me, um, and I would I would totally agree. Ah, um, oh, thanks. It feels so much grander, and mm-hmm. um, and as you said, it works as a record, um, as a recorded piece of music, separate from it being a document of so- something of a performative piece of music. It's yeah. it's it's distinct. It feels distinctly like a, a recorded journey, you know, and um, yeah, gorgeous sounding as well. Andrew's production is is just so incredible, and uh, and the way that you've arranged the pieces. Yeah, well, he he's got an incredible ear, and yeah, he's ability. a genius. He's he's really, uh, you know, matured into being like a a really fantastic record producer as well as all the other strings to his bow you know of which there are many um Mm -hmm. so we're really really fortunate and it's also like first record malakatars one it's only a short piece that was recorded in about four hours second record malakatars two that was done in one evening malakatars three i think was done over two maybe three days uh 22 strings was done in two long studio sessions after a long period of playing live and then this new one uh norther it's taken us about a year to from starting the recording process to finishing it and it's not been some like horrible slog during Mm. that time there's been periods where we've been away doing other things or playing live or whatever but it's been we've had the luxury because we're using a studio that's you know, one of the band runs um, to take our time with it. And um, and I feel like we've, the good thing is normally when you take ages on something, you just end up accruing more and more layers. And I feel <laughs> like we've actually ended up pairing this down to like the absolute essence of what the, the pieces are supposed to be. Even when the instrumentation's a little bit expanded from what we do on stage and um when when do you expect this to be appearing would um, it be it, next year yeah think? it looks like it's going to be may 2024 right nice nice yeah all being well we 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 sort of signed off on the mixes amongst ourselves a, a good couple of months ago now so mm-hmm. we're kind of like eager to find a home get it out there mm-hmm. and actually start working on new stuff yeah. as well which we have already started doing actually we've, we've got a few ideas in the pipeline so yeah that's um we just we just want to get it out there we think it sounds great when we've been playing it live over this last year the response has been amazing so like it seems like people are certainly totally digging the live show and then when i've played people the record they seem to be digging it too so when are the next shows? What are the next shows coming up for the for X Star? Because obviously there's going to be quite a time 
um, for people to wait for the record. So when yeah. when can, when, they, when can they see it replicated live? Well, we're playing Supersonic Festival first mm-hmm. September, and then we've got shows in London and Bristol in September. We're going to be playing our first shows in mainland Scotland in October. And then we're playing um, Boundaries Festival in Sunderland in November. And we've got a Liverpool show in December. Nice. So, so you, you, you're busy. busy. Yeah, busy. we've got a fair bit coming up, yeah. Yeah. Nothing too taxing, but busy. Yeah. <laughs> which is what I, I think that that's one of the things that I've always respected about X Easter is that you you don't like hammer tours you do like you do great little runs of shows that are not like they're not they're not a hassle for you guys to sort of commit to too much and yeah I mean, do you know what I mean I think it comes down to just you know the the people in the band um much more than me have spent years doing get in the van tours you yeah know, <laughs> and, and getting to play amazing shows and have brilliant times and I, I want a bit more of that myself like but they're kind of they've done all that and they know that like doing a three-week stint that uses up like all your holidays from work you know to play some shows that might be really good and some that are just filling in dates and all of that it's kind of just not like the the most efficient way of of using your time like it's a good recipe for getting exhausted burn out yeah and and skinned you know (laughs) and basically if if you're both those things you're not happy and if you're not happy you're not in a very good place to to think about doing the band so yeah. it's it's all about like keeping it sustainable. So it's mm-hmm. gotta it's gotta work with like I say sustainable. I don't mean in an environmental way, um, regrettably. Um, but in terms of ourselves, you know, like it's gotta work with our jobs and families and lives and other projects we've got going on. Mm-hmm. Because if you start pushing it and it's really starting to do someone's head in or take up too much of their time or energy or whatever then they're not going to want to do it and like you know we just have a really enjoyable time making music together so we just concentrate arranging the shows on like well let's do quality not quantity you know um and it it took me a while to get used to this idea of there are certain periods of year when you're going to be doing stuff and there are certain periods when you're not and Mm -hmm. actually I'm, i'm quite into that now like mm-hmm. took me a while to to be comfortable with that because you know my idea of a band was that you gig all the time or that you're available to gig all the time and that gigs take preference over everything else and you know and i think that's a useful mindset and way of doing things at certain points in your career but where we're at now as people and stuff makes more sense to do chunks of chunks of dates leave it for a bit do some more you know yeah yeah totally um so let's look at some of your earlier projects because <laughs> speak, speaking of tour touring um you did you did your own get in the van go around europe lose loads of money with stig, <laughs> stig noise sound system yeah it, was that in 2008 
Yeah, long time ago now. When when you could still when you could still do it. I think I toured about a year. My first EU tour was maybe no, it wasn't a year before. It was in two thousand and five actually. Um, yeah, we were lucky with that. How was it? Um, so you hadn't you've not been in the the Liverpool institution APAT, but you have no. been on you have been in the second what I would call the secondary <laughs> institution which is Jake's Stig Noise Sound System. Yeah, incredible band. Yep. Sadly, sadly not going anymore. Um, you know, for people that didn't, weren't lucky enough to hear them, they were like a sort of mixture of like angular noise rock with kind of mariachi, cuban brass parts and then like Hawaiian slide guitar and then also like records being played at the same time, like like maybe bits of Exotica and things like that. And it was just a really like carnivalesque, like really messy, interesting sound, very much its own thing. It completely, completely avoided any like scar associations despite having a very prominent brass section yeah <laughs> um, it did it really did and, and uh yeah it just had an amazing sort of freewheeling atmosphere um and lots of things like running into the audience and you know playing empty beer bottles as percussion on the lip of the stage and you know wheeling a big parade drum through the audience and banging on that and all sorts of fun stuff and yeah i basically filled in on bass uh for half a tour it was a month-long tour and i filled in for george Mond, later of x easter island head uh on bass and it just arrived at the perfect time for me that because i was playing in a band so like i was playing a lot so it was okay you know on my instrument and then just the opportunity came up uh nick hunt andy hunt's brother dear friend and collaborator um came back from being away for about eight weeks with stig came around to my flat and was just sort of regaling me with tour tales and stuff and i just thought god this sounds like a laugh getting to play music in these places sounds incredible and the places you've got to visit and stuff like that and so he knew i was keen and then an opportunity came up and he said you fancy it so yeah i joined the band for two weeks <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was great you know like it was just totally eye-opening it's it's like the only time i've done a run of dates that long actually it's the only time i've yeah done the whole get in the van thing and like you know, managed to go through Switzerland, Germany, Holland, France, possibly somewhere else as well. But, you know, we got to see a load of DIY spaces, load, learned so many lessons. You know, like I remember Bill from the band, the, the slide guitar player, you know, pointing out the really simple thing of like, you know, after you've sound checked and everything, like put your bass on top of the amp flat rather than like leaning against it because if it's leaning against it someone can walk across the stage 
trip over the lead and then your base goes on the floor and gets damaged or goes out of tune or whatever. He's like, just stick it up on the amp and sling the lead behind it. And that way it's going to be absolutely fine when you come to play it. So simple. But like, you need to learn these lessons and you need you need someone who's been doing it for years to point it out sometimes. You know? Absolutely. So I learned loads of stuff like that and also just got this insight into like, you know, DIY culture in Europe, like playing squats and, you know, and just sit the, 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 the audiences and the venues and the places and the network of people's houses you were crashing at, you know, where it's like they weren't even at the gig and they're letting us stay in their house. And then yeah. in the morning there's food there for you. And, you know, we were on tour with an American band called Pack, And I remember uh, getting up on the morning Obama got in and uh, our host, I can't remember his name, lovely French man, you know, opened a bottle of wine. We all had a glass of wine and kind of toasted the new president. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like wonderfully optimistic. Um, you know, just like so many moments like that. I, I got a, a whole album of good photos from that tour, which I'll show you at some point. Um, but the, the thing with that tour was I came back from that and like, I had two things in my mind. One was, how do I get to do that again? Yeah. Uh, and two, I looked at uh, Nick Hunt, or as we call him, Stick, who was in the band, and he played trumpet. And he's a great trumpet player, but by his own admission, he's like a pretty simple trumpet player. And he's, you know, he's not exactly Miles Davis. Like, you know, he has a really good facility on the instrument but quite a limited one. Um, but even with that limited facility, by virtue of playing an unusual instrument, the trumpet, as opposed to guitar, bass or drum, he'd been able to go and do all this cool shit, you know? So I kind of looked at that and thought like, uh, if you can offer some something that's a bit different, then you, you get more opportunity to do cool Absolutely. stuff Absolutely. You know? so like and it you know it wasn't when did i get back from the stick tour november 2008 and so my thinking about x easter island had sort of started not long after coming back from that trying to trying to find something new you know mm. so i, I read that tour was um one of the most sort of pivotal valuable experiences of my life so a heartfelt thanks to our dear friend Jake Stig, who yeah. had me along for that. Shout out to Jake Stig, love love that guy. Um, an another enduring project of yours, which um, I don't know whether it predates Andrew joining X Easter Island Head, um, but yeah. is, is, is Land Trance. Um, yeah. So, how how did you begin working with with Andrew? And just just give us a bit of a snapshot of the project. Well, Land Trance is the two of us. It's a duo. Um, and it's broadly uh, electroacoustic improvisation. Um, and we've basically been friends since we met in 2005. Um, he was briefly studying at the University of Liverpool, where I was also studying. So I met him there. And then when we finished uni, uh, well, he, he left before me, but when I graduated in 2008, um, 
me, him, his brother, uh, and George Morn, and various people we were in bands with, and a whole load of our other friends all moved into a big shared house. It was like 14 of us living in this big shared house for a year. Um, and then we moved to another big shared house where we lived for seven years. Uh, it's like a former nursing home. And that's where, you know, m- most of the ex-Easter activity up until uh, six years ago took place there. So a good, like, seven, eight years in uh, this big shared house. So me and Andy have been friends and very close friends and have lived together for years. And we've also shared bandmates and, fre- you know, so many other friends and so many experiences and things like that. So we've been very close for a long time. And then he was living in New York for a while. And then when he came back to Liverpool, we sort of reconnected and we were just hanging out a lot in his flat, listening to music, you know, getting drunk, etc., um, And just catching up through sound. And then, you know, we'd had little tiny jams over the years and, practice rooms and things like that but basically i was always in a in a nice non-agro way i was kind of just really intimidated by his abilities and his musical thinking you know and so we'd kind of each been doing our own we'd each been leading bands for years he had the group outfit while i had exister island head and we were both doing stuff and always checking in with each other and then yeah we just ended up in the flat one night, just deciding, let's have a jam. Like, um, but I'd brought round some of the vibration motors I was talking about earlier, the mobile phone motors that we use on the strings. I brought them round to show him, and I, that was it. I just had this motor. He had a zither, so it's like, okay, motor plus zither. Great, that sounds brilliant. He threw a mic up, got recording. Uh, jumped on this little Yamaha keyboard that he really likes to play uh, and I had a oscillator app on my phone and we just jammed on that That and that was again the first thing we've ever done together and that ended up on the record we made the, the first really? Seance album yeah it's the title track on first seance um, and it was our first meeting and you know we, we improvised together and it just felt very very right and like we'd both been doing our own things long enough that we could actually finally sit down and do music together without feeling weird because at the same time I was feeling you know a little intimidated by his incredible skills and ambition and so on you know he was really admiring the directions I was taking ex easter and how i was leading that and stuff so there was just like a really healthy mutual respect and i think we had to like basically get to a certain age before we were sort of mature enough to like dialogue musically that makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah which is a a really nice thing you know to to feel your relationship as friends suddenly open up in that way and it's like Mm. oh this is happening um and yeah, it just felt really fucking good. And we listened back to it. It's like, well, this is great. Let's keep doing this. So like the, the first Lantrance record, 
you know, there was no deadline, there was no band name. It was just like, let's get together when we can and play on stuff. And the general uh, methodology was like, let's do um, an improvisation on acoustic instruments. An acoustic might include a keyboard with built-in speakers, you know, something that's in the room rather than plugged into an interface. Uh, it might include a dictaphone. I'm very fond. I'm very fond of using a cassette dictaphone as an instrument. Um, we'll do we'll do a bit of acoustic improvisation. So we'll play around with various odds and sods until we like find a nice combination of sounds, and then we'll record a pass of that, and then we'll generally move on to something more electronic, and then do a pass over the top of our acoustic improvisation with electronic instruments and then it's a case of kind of arranging and adding parts to characterful moments and it's it's really there's, there's been very little um sort of discussion when we're working on stuff there's just a certain like vibe <laughs> that feels right for like unspoken yeah, mainly unspoken. There's just a kind of you can just tell when it's working, but it it you know it can broadly be classed as like Andy tends to provide the the chord structure normally on organ or synth, um, a fair bit of piano on things we've been working on actually now, but on keyboards basically. He'll provide like a bit of a chord structure or a mood in that sense. And then my role, I don't know. It's all dialogue, really. We're just dialoguing with each other. And I, I have like loads of odds and ends, you know, like little instruments I've collected over the years or like little obsolete bits of tech. And I just end up bringing them into it and they'll suggest a, a way forward, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but we've kept guitar completely out of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to use any guitar because that's obviously the main thing in X Easter Island Ted. So there's no guitar at all. There's been no acoustic drums either. Um, they they were the they they're the only instrumental sort of no nos that we've ever voiced. I think. And that um, they make sense. Those 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 yeah. being cut off from the project, they do make sense. Yeah. And in terms of, um, is is it currently just the studio only project? Yeah, very much yeah. so. Just Are you because. You keep it that way. Yeah. Well, I think so. I mean, we're both so busy. You know, we're we're already playing together next Easter. Then Andy's got his whole. Um, career as dialect making mm -hmm. just some incredible stuff really really good mm -hmm. um so like there's a question of fitting it in but also i haven't got a clue how we do it because the instrumentation between tracks with land trance is so all over the place like you'd either have to go on tour with just this huge lorry full of shit <laughs> or restrict yourself to a very limited palette which isn't really what the group is anyway yeah like so i there probably is a live version of it 
but we we don't know what that is yet. It might uh, just naturally occur, right? Yeah, but with we haven't worried about that. It's just like a lovely thing when we get together in the studio. And we're, there's a lot of being each other's hype man <laughs> because yeah. there's a lot of one person playing a part and the other person sort of crouched over them being like, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, 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 more of that, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Like, it's, it's kind of good. He, he tends to sit, once we've recorded a bunch of stuff, he'll sit at the computer editing it, pitching things up, pitching things down, adding various effects and moving blocks of sound around to kind of get this bricolage thing. And I'll generally just pace up and down behind him smoking. Um, and when it gets re- when we know it's really good is when I start kind of dancing round behind him. Um, that <laughs> seems to typify a lot of land trans uh, sessions. So uh, you did the record first sales that was released as a download only through Forest Swords Record. Who Andy yeah. Andy does uh, live saxophone for him. That's right. And, yeah, yeah. And keys, I think, and another electronics. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Um, uh, so is there is there a future record in the works? Yeah, we've got like basically, you know, we were really amazed when we, when we put the Land Trans record out. You know, we got a lovely interview in the Quietus, um, which we weren't expecting at all. You know, they really got behind it. They really loved it. It came really high up in their end of year list and you know we got some really good press that we just weren't expecting it just seemed to really touch people in a way that we hadn't anticipated which was great uh really encouraging so we've we have been working on stuff now i mean it's probably about three years like it's been very sporadic over the last year we haven't done that much but we've amassed so much material for a second record Mm. Um, it's basically in the works like we, we've we been doing that sieving process that we talked yeah. about earlier and the, the thing with the, the next record is that um, we sort of took as the starting point I've got like two shoe boxes full of cassette tapes that I recorded on my four track cassette recorder between about the ages of 15 and 23 or something when I first got a got a computer uh to record on like so there's a good chunk of years that's where all my musical sketches are kind of contained on these cassette tapes so we kind of during the pandemic you know we're living together we were you know quarantined together uh and the studio was there so we actually just went through all these tapes and just pulled out enigmatic little bits and obviously some of the tapes were recorded on different tape machines so they play back at different speeds some of them have been sitting there for years like so they've gone all degraded and things like that so in the bedrock is kind of um yeah my my four track tape archive and then we've just gone from there um and yeah the the new new stuff and feels weird saying it's new because we've been recording for ages but um when we do get around to doing the second land trance record it's really there's there's going to be quite a strong vocal element to it actually 
no lyrics, but there's there's a curious sensation of I get to uh, sing against my voice that was recorded, you know, uh, 20 years ago, uh, and then singing against it with my voice now. And like, mm. I can't can't hit those pitches anymore or there's a certain grain to the voice or we're using the kind of cracked voice quite a bit and uh it feels really exciting but to be honest the the priority with land trance has been on um finishing off the recordings we we made with philip jack before he passed away yeah that's what i was just about to ask you about because um you had collaborated with Philip Jack and I wasn't entirely sure whether it was with X East or, or it was with Land Trance, but I was fairly certain it was with Land Trance. Yeah, yeah, it was with Land Trance and we we we've got an album basically, like where we looked at that not so long ago actually. Um and yeah, I'm I'm again like honoured we got to do that. It's it's such a shame because basically we were becoming really good friends with Phil. Mm-hmm. Um you know, seen him around Liverpool for years. You know, used to run into him in the Aldi. Uh, you know, played a few <laughs> gigs with him. Um, you know, we've been on the same bill. You know, sat at the bar with him after other shows. You know, got to know each other over the years, but not like super close or anything. And then at some point, I can't remember. I think maybe he came to a gig we put on in our house. And, um, you know, we'd just been getting to know him better and we, we showed him the studio Yeah. just suggested maybe we, maybe we could do something together. And he was really up for it, super open-minded. And so with Phil, we ended up recording before, just before the pandemic, I think in February 2020. And then... I can't remember when the, we we did two two recording sessions with him basically. I think the first one was two days, the second one was two days and a morning, so like two and a half days, something like that. And then he also played a gig in in our house, which was wonderful. Um, and yeah, it's it's strange uh, working on a record where your friend and collaborators no longer with us you know mm. um i'm not gonna say that like we're sat there listening to it in like solemn silence or whatever while we're listening back to the takes it's it's not like that you know it's it's uh, we have a laugh listening to it and there's like there's bits where there's some really like mad stuff going on that didn't work but it was like how the hell did we end up here and also this is hilarious listening like just some of the choices Phil's making. It's like, I would never do that. That is fucking genius. But <laughs> also, this is like completely mad. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like, um, but we had such a nice dialogue between the three of us. You know, I think the thing, you know, I'm still, the record's not finished yet, but like, we've got more than enough material. And we've basically done the sieving on that, and I think we've we've got it down to eight tracks or something like that mm-hmm. of 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 the really good stuff, you know. And the the thing with the Phil stuff is that 
Andy's playing a lot of piano rather than synthesizer. So it's a lot of Phil Jack's audio collage stuff with Andy playing very characterful piano. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm a little bit more on the fringes for some of it, but then I got a bit of trombone in there, a bit of sampler, um, you know, my usual bag of tricks. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just come out sounding really good. And, and the, the thing for us, that the sort of most emotional uh, moment of it is the very last piece we recorded, which is like, basically we recorded on a Wednesday with Phil, like we did a, a whole day or evening session. I can't remember which. Great session. On the Thursday, Phil had to go to a funeral of one of his old friends. And then he returned on the Friday and we just had I think we did like half nine in the morning till like one in the afternoon that was the slot we had basically Um, and so that very last session you know Phil had just come back from this funeral but he was you know in a really like reflective mood it was a really bright sunny morning as well there was just a vibe and the very last thing we played, you know, we looked at the clock and we said, like, we've got 10 minutes. Let's do um, let's do an eight minute one and then uh, take a two minute breather before we finish or something like that, you know. And so we ended up doing like a, a, a very morning sounding piece, a very bright blossoming thing. But what's interesting is me and Andy were playing really quite sweet really sunny bright sounds and phil threads through it by playing like sometimes he's violently in opposition to what we're doing sometimes he goes with it for a bit and but his choices are just like it's like it's like he's sort of um saying you know don't get too sort of mellowed out, lads. Like, don't get too blissed out here. Like, you know, you got to have a bit of fire to this, you know? Yeah. And he's, like, really fucking throwing some really, like, angular stuff on it. And it, it's just, it's really exciting to me. And it really, like, sums up, like, this lovely relationship we had. So, like, this across all the material we worked on him with, there's some, like, just beautiful moments very beautiful and then there's some really dark stuff as well like very cold very sort of quite evil sounding stuff amazing Um, yeah it's 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 a beautiful thing and yeah there's something about the last piece we did together that feels really poignant you know like Mm. without without going into that like making too much of that it's nice and then there's also just other strange things like you know there's tracks on the record with church bells and harps and things that seem suggestive of like spirituality or you know it's 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 an interesting experience finishing that record off um but but we the good thing is we played the material to fill we emailed it to him while he was in hospital and the last communication we had with him about week and a half before he died was that he really liked it. And um, Mary, his his wife, has, um, has given her a blessing to, for us to carry on, make it what 
it needs to be and then let's see what happens with it brilliant that's amazing that you've had yeah. that lesson as well yeah um, and i mean some some of the things that you've hinted at um i think one of the ways that people responded to first science that record there is it's not overt but there is a sort of a sort of sacredness to the music and, yeah. an, and an emotional resonance um that perhaps you wouldn't um you wouldn't necessarily expect from a record made from those sound sources uh so you know it i, I can see why people were were um you re really responded to it the way that they did you know yeah i think um andy's use of the the organ certainly lends it this uh sort of liturgical yeah. catholic kind of thing <laughs> yeah. and then there's also this um you know this piece on there that's um sort of obliquely a bit of a response to a mutual friend of ours who, who, who took their own life um about oh, 13 years ago now you know um and that that piece is called chilean miners it it was like the night that we found out he died it was when there was all those miners trapped in the mine in, in chile yeah and and it was the night they all finally got rescued you know after like 49 days underground or something so while we were receiving the news of this terrible loss of our friend you know there was also this joy on the you know because uh, when you when you're dealing with the shock of learning someone's just died you know you, you you can't really go to sleep you know and at some point you're just numb so you just stick the telly on and just watch the telly in silence you know yeah. and the only thing that was on was was all these miners being being rescued you know and it was so joyous and the 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 commentator was you know the the broadcast was obviously being sent to the bbc from the local chilean news team so you were getting the broadcast in um chilean is it portuguese or spanish or mm -hmm. uh you know um being translated into english as well so you've got like two voices going on already which gives this and the the guy translating is really emotional on the broadcast you know and it, it's very poignant you know yeah and sounds uh, deep yeah and just the words they were using in this thing of bringing people out and bringing people up and mm. you know it, it's seen the opposite of the circumstances of uh, our friends passing you know so like there's a kind of yeah we ended up using some of that broadcast and using a sample of that in the piece and as a sort of tribute to our friend and it just um yeah there's a bit of a like personal spiritual something <laughs> going yeah. on in that yeah. record you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely i mean a lot a lot of the ways that you've described how you work as a duo was certainly my experience of what it was like when we we collaborated together yeah. uh to to create embassy nocturnes yeah yeah there's a bit of that although i, I do remember the the sort of brief of like you know because the music you make with aging is so 
um, has such a specific set of um, sort of stylistic touches, and it's it's you've called it genre music. Yeah, like which I love that. I love that. <laughs> like self-consciously operating within this sort of noir genre, which mm-hmm. is a very slippery thing in itself. You know, like. Um, our understanding of noir for most people, obviously not you because you're a fairly exhaustive expert on it, but <laughs> most people kind of experience the idea of film noir. It's a kind of loosely assembled idea of what it is rather than having been exposed to lots of that work itself. You know, we've seen it parodied a yes. lot. Yes. We've seen it, uh, you know, uh, comedy shows or things where they're doing a bit where it's sort of meant to invoke that or things, you know, something like, I don't know, Sin City or something mm-hmm. in that film, which I hate, incidentally. Um, like, <laughs> But, you know, that that, that kind of, or like um, some, the Max Payne video game we've spoken yeah. about in the past, yeah. you know, they kind of help codify these, like, tropes of, of noir and, and, you know, I think it's really interesting the way you play around with that and kind of invoke all of these things in your music. And I liked, I remember putting it to you, the idea of like, well, you know, land trance could kind of expand those reference points. So because of the electronic side of land trance, you could go in for, you could start almost referencing things like, Ghost in the Shell or, yeah. uh, you know, Blade Runner, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's a kind of electronic sci-fi element to noir that you can draw on the associations of or something. Um, and then we'd also talked about things like um, John Barry's score for the Ipcris file, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. as being kind of sort of noir adjacent but with this kind of exotic colour with the, the symbol arm in it and things like that. And so it was this idea of taking what you do, which is in like quite a strict set of parameters, and then land trance where it's like we're using all sorts of we're throw we're just throwing all sorts of odds and sods at it to, to make it happen, you know. Like and I, I, I think the record came out sounding good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really did. Um, I think it's one of those projects where um, you, you maybe have this problem sometimes is that when when you're in the recording process or, you know, you've just finished a record, you kind of kind of can't need, you can't listen to it for a bit. And uh, because you can just hear all your playing and all your right, the process of your, the creation is still there and you don't get that this that distance where you can be sort of objective about it. But this was the first time when making the record and, you know, actually in the process of recording, um, I was, my input within the record wasn't as, um, I wasn't, I wasn't as worried about it as I usually would be, if that makes sense. I was able to be objective throughout the entire creation of the record, which is why it was one of the, it's, Definitely one of the most valuable records I've ever worked on, if not the most valuable record I've worked on so far. Yeah, I mean, I loved I loved doing it because the 
the pieces themselves, a lot of them emerged out of like the barest scraps of an idea, but there's like an ember in there of an idea, and then the the tunes were kind of constructed around, well, what do we have? Mm-hmm. And then like, let's build it up from there. You know, the record sounds a lot like a group in a room mm-hmm. going to some really out there places in, in a group improvisation. And in effect, it was a group improvisation, but just not all happening at the same time. You know, it's like layers of improvisation, sometimes separated by like six months or something, layered up on top of each other and sort of shaping the tunes, responding to each layer of input or something. Mm -hmm. And I do remember the dance your little dance coming out when stuff was working and we were all getting up and <laughs> that's how you know giving it's... a little giving a little twist when things were working that's how you know it's working yeah it's funny you mentioned ghost in the shell um because it's such an obvious reference but i was like ah oh, when you said it i was like of course uh, the track that i'm thinking of is the last one where you were playing the bamboo marimba yeah um that has a real ghost in the shell vibe um i think with with without without knowing it offhand but i mean when we when we were when we got together there were just so many shared reference points do you know what i mean i think we were were all coming from the same place um which 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 made the record like such a joy to create and and the fact that it was it was done in a way where you know, someone would do a take a piano um, and then we'd be like, oh, that part's working. And then, you know, going sort of round robin in the room, like if, you know, people throwing out ideas, maybe this would sound good with it. And they were all sort of unconventional instrumentation. Yeah. And I think there was there was only a few cuts where we we're all actually playing live in the room together. And that was uh, track three, Creeping Moonlight. Yeah. Which I think we recorded second take. Uh, and that was just that just that that riff just sort of appeared. Yeah. And, and that was there was just a a, telep- a telepathy going on where we were like, whoa, everyone is just playing the riff. We're all moving. It was like a pre-written piece of music, but it yeah. just appeared. Yeah. Crazy. That, yeah. It's funny. I remember John Doran from The Quiet is saying that it's the year's most autumnal record. And uh, I think you Bless can really, it. I think you can really hear that in that in that piece. And yeah, uh, yeah, others were just from like the barest things, like a tiny bit of tiny piano doodle or something that then ends up just getting sculpted into something else. Yeah, I enjoyed as well with that, like kind of. Obviously, we didn't make it as like a kind of concept album or whatever, but. The, the sort of suggestion of a narrative through the track titles and the artwork and, and obviously the sound of the record itself and the place it was recorded like it just um it, it just feels like a very contained mood i think we managed to to really create a, a really good sense of, of narrative with that one yeah definitely evocative of the place that we recorded in which i guess we should discuss a little bit um because you now live in the former brazilian embassy well brazilian consulate 
consulate. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, embassy is a bit more grand because um, an embassy is constructed to to be as such, but uh, a consulate is dependent on where the consul lives, and a consul is often a private citizen that just chooses to be a helpful representative of their country. Uh, so I once had to visit the Dutch consul in Liverpool with Yuri Landman because he'd lost his passport. And the Dutch consul, you know, the Dutch consulate was just their house. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, right. So at one, po- at one point, the, the house uh, I live in was the, the Brazilian consulate, but it's a very grand house. Uh, there's 15 of us living here. It's a big shared house. And um, I believe it was built by I did some research on this. It was built by a chemical magnate in the eight, in eighteen forty or something. Um but it's got a very grand sort of ballroom <laughs> as its living room. Uh, which lends a a real vibe. Um and it just has a lot of touches in the decoration and and stuff of the house. It's been kept very close to its former luster. And uh, it really speaks of all the things that must have happened here. You can picture dignitaries being here and things like that. And when we first moved in, you know, there was like a, we found like a World War II gas mask in the basement and the landlords told us a story about having found a secret compartment uh, while he was redoing uh, the carpet or something. Or maybe it was in the attic. Anyway, he'd found this secret compartment that he claims had in it a box which contained a load of Italian fascist newspapers, um, a Nazi shirt with a pin on it, a Nazi pin on it and a, and a gun and a handgun um, so it's like, what was this like a saboteur's kit or yeah. something, you know yeah. and and he called the um, police firearms squad and they came round and they said, oh, if you'd attempted to have fired that gun, it would have blown your hand off, it's fucked whoa, <laughs> whoa. yeah um Difficult to say whether that's true or not. I really hope it is, because that kind of intrigue is the stuff I live for, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it just, it's very believable when you're in the house that that might have happened. Um, so, yeah, that lends a certain atmosphere. <laughs> Absolutely. The house is, is um, you know, very old world. Um, yeah. Old world opulence, and as you said, you've got a huge ballroom, um, and like a drawing room, and and like a like a, almost like a cocktail area that's all sort of <laughs> in one massive long living room, which you've done several concerts in, right? Yeah, yeah, I've got one coming up very soon, actually. Uh, Nick Branton and Loose Maudley are playing here. Nice. Um, but yeah, we well we had aging play obviously your your mm-hmm. group and then yeah Philip Jack played here. One of my favourites was we had Bridget Hayden over from Todmorden. She did a wonderful set followed by um, 
Sam. Oh God, what's his surname? Um, it, David Chaton Barker and Sam McLaughlin. They do stuff often under. They they run a label, Folklore Tapes. They mm-hmm. make a lot of their own instruments work with a lot of environmental sounds and Aeolian sounds. So I had them over last year, and that was incredible. You know. Yeah, so when Agent played, I guess that was one of the impetuses for um, us to, to, to make a record together because I think that was the first time Andy had seen me play live. Yeah, uh, and also just seeing your the, the music that Agent do in that surrounding, it was just like, well, there's a resonance here. This yeah. just makes sense on so many levels that like I could see this opening up into something. Really, still one of the most special gigs I've ever played, man. So thank you so much for inviting <laughs> yeah, to come us. Yeah, do another one. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. But yeah, um, yeah, the house has this really sort of old world opulence to it. Um, bit resident, yeah. bit resident evil. Yeah, it is. Really- which was, <laughs> which is also another shared, um, yeah, touch point for uh, for the record record as well. I think we were titling stuff "Save Room Music" and That's stuff like right. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, it's funny, like this shared living thing, because mm. as I say, there's fifteen of us living here. You know, it's. I've been living this way since 2008 in three different houses now and we've been very fortunate as a group of friends and obviously that group of friends has you know grown and people move away and new people come into it and stuff but we've been really fortunate in that we've had a group of people around us who want to live communally mm-hmm. like this keeps things cheap you know um but also that there's been properties available for us to to do that you know we are incredibly fortunate like uh, there's not many places like this and i feel like whenever the time comes when the landlord sells up this place i can't imagine we'll find anything like this again you know because the incentive is to turn big places into into flats basically there's, there's no incentive in having 15 people sharing one house and you know, for it brings so many advantages. You know, X Easter and Ted have always had a practice room in the house for for nearly the whole time we've been a band. Whichever house we've been living in, you know, the studio is here. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we practice in the the my bedroom where I'm speaking to you now. Like, um, you know, it's it's large enough that we can fit the band in there, and you know, my housemates are understanding enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can practice here and you know and we've got the space to put on a gig if we want and it's just incredibly fortunate and so so much of my creativity has been enabled by my living situation like and yeah I'm just incredibly grateful for that you know this is why we, we had an ex-easter release called Lodge which was like a we put we we did that as a digital only release and that was from our old house which was called crossseth lodge or known amongst our friends as the lodge um Mm -hmm. and basically when we were moving out of that like the the house was more or less empty but the piano 
and the harmonium and a couple of bits were still left over. So we just did an improv one afternoon, um, kind of, it was like, you know, lived here for seven years and this has fostered so much of our music. Like, you know, we recorded Manic Tars 3 in that house and stuff. You know, it's just like, you know, when you, you kind of want to celebrate a place or kind of almost like a sort of private ceremony <laughs> for leaving yeah. the place or something. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 crazy how much the yeah our living situation has has enabled so much of what we've done. You know, shaped your music, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, we're so lucky. I mean, you know, God, we've had to put up with some like total fucking bollocks as well. You know, terrible floods and you know very dangerous gas leak situations thanks to cowboy landlords and. You know, you, you kind of take the rough with the smooth. But if mm-hmm. you're prepared to accept some privations in how you live, like, it's it's like, it's been a very fortunate uh, way, of, way of living, you know. One that makes me think, like, when this doesn't exist, whenever that may be, how the hell am I going to live anywhere? <laughs> you yeah. Know, afford yeah. somewhere to live and... What's, uh, you know, where's the band going to rehearse and all that? But you, there's no sense worrying about things that haven't happened yet, you know? No, no. And you've got the right attitude. I mean, you're so appreciative of it, you know, yeah. and, and it really sounds like everyone who is living there or has, or has got portions of the house dedicated to certain things that they can use it for are really, really making the most of it, um, which is which is phenomenal to see. It's kind of European-esque, right? Yeah, and and the other thing is, you know, living this way, I just, it's it gives you the drive to keep doing stuff because you're surrounded by other people doing stuff all the time. Yeah. You know, there's just, like, okay, it can be bad to compare yourself to other people, you know, like, that, that can be an unhealthy way of doing things, but it's also incredibly useful at times. You know, the the amount of interesting artists and musicians and, and, you know, interesting people, people who aren't artists and musicians, but the, whatever they're doing in their life is equally inspirational and mm-hmm. useful and just gives you, you know, gives you energy. And it's just, um, yeah, community and, you know, community is super important to making creative things happen. And I'm just really lucky that I mean, more. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, so speaking about that community is, I mean, you talked about um, some projects forming out of the Salford Electric um, hmm. uh, ensemble. I guess one of the delayed ones is, um, you know, I met Josh Horsley through that um, working in that in that group. Yeah. And I'm so glad that me, you, Josh, and um, and my wife Lauren are now yeah. beginning to make music together here at my house and in, in my, yeah. my my little garage. Um, so although it's been delayed, that's another project that's sort of blossomed out of the, the sort of large, large elect- ensemble. And I think yeah. the the process that we went through making Embassy Nocturnes um, has informed the work that we're making in this new. I'm going to call it a quartet for... Yeah. Well, it is, you know, it's us, it's me, you, Josh and Lauren, isn't it? You know, it's... Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Josh, is, 
Josh is playing cello. Um, you have your assortment of um, audio. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, main, it's mainly the Digitect sampler, the bowed banjo and the trombone of my yeah. my station, isn't it? And then you're playing sax guitar, uh, baritone guitar and keys. Yeah, it's mostly been baritone that I've been using. Um, yeah. Just because uh, I think it just sort of blends with the cello um, a lot more. And as a sort yeah. of solo instrument, um, even though it's a lower frequency, there's just there seems to just be a sort of a, a regalness and a sort of... Um, a, a a dominant not a dominance but you know what i mean like um it's there's a more yeah, pronounced got, sound it's, it's 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 got presence um, exactly it, se- it seems to sit amongst the trombone and the cello very well and then mm-hmm. i think the fact that you know lauren is using voice you know we've got mm-hmm. this female voice in a, in that mix i think it leaves loads of space mm-hmm. for her voice you know, it's not competing against like normal guitar frequencies. Mm-hmm. And you know? um, it's we've we've done stuff with her in the room, and then stuff with her overdubbing. And um, you know, it's it seems to just be really working. I think we're 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 list. It's more the music we're making is you can hear us actively listening to each other, and there's um, it's more spacious. I think. Yeah, and and more organic, and slower, slower, slowly, more slower forming than perhaps the other music in Embassy Nocturnes. It's less, um, it's less of a collage or or bricolage of 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 layers so Mm -hmm. far. Anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's more playing in the room together, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Like, Mm um, yeah, I've really liked the fact that our sessions have seen a 30 degree temperature difference between them you know we recorded at like minus four or something didn't we and it was ice on the ground and snowing outside and uh clustered around the little heater in the garage and and then doing a take and i think the music really reflects that and then last time we got together it was baking hot and Mm -hmm. proper tops off weather um and the music came out sounding really humid and you know i i just feel like again we're sort of channeling the the place and the, the time that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're recording it you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i think and it's, uh, naturally yeah. allowing that to occur in the music yeah 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 so i mean i'm really excited to see where this project goes and and hopefully um that should be making an appearance in some form of another in in yeah. the new, in the new year. But um, yeah, yeah, we're, totally. we're we're due to record again. So and then and then it's on to as you say, the sifting sifting yeah. for the gold. Yeah, <laughs> which is always always one of my favourite um, aspects of of making a record. Would you agree as well? Yeah, I think a lot of your your music practice you know so much of it is listening yeah you know and and frequently you know i'll listen to hours of improvisations that recorded with a view to sieving it down and getting it into what's the what's the gold here 
mm-hmm. you know, I'll do that while I'm doing something else. Yeah. You know, listening to it kind of passively because mm-hmm. then you really know which bits catch your ear because you, you end up stopping what you're doing and listening to it. Whereas if you sit down and you've got a four-hour chunk of music to listen to, you know, fatigue sets in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great little technique, actually. And yeah. um, uh, one one you, which seems obvious, but I don't think, you know, it's one that I've done myself, but not actively enough, I don't think. So I'll definitely be doing that myself. Um, yeah. So what, what other projects have you got on on the go apart from so we've got land trance uh, and a potential record with philip jack that's in the process of being refined you've got an upcoming um you've got the new x easter island head record coming out and and a, and a handful of shows um there's our work our new new quartet work um yeah and, and uh you, you said that you had done some recording with uh pete pete taylor yeah, Peter Taylor from Holy Scum. Um, yeah, I I first worked with him like 10, 11 years ago. We did a session, me, Peter Taylor and Harry Taylor, no relation. Um, <laughs> and we did a session at Invada Studios in Bristol, which was fantastic, like a lovely experience. That's never seen the light of day just because we're like real ditherers and, <laughs> just, you know, I don't know. We, we just, the sieving on that has taken a very long time. But anyway, <laughs> whether that formed part of what we're doing now. But yeah, we, we started playing together um, again last year mm-hmm. ra- round here. He's on modular synth, baritone and effects and uh, I'm playing sampler, trombone, and banjo. Same stuff I'm playing in our collaboration. And we we had a really good session recently, um, just in their rehearsal rooms in uh, uh, Rochdale. And um, Alex McCart of Nod um, sat in for a bit and did some beautiful electronic work. And we're still in the process of figuring out what that is. It's kind yeah. of like some of it sounds a bit like death prod. Mm-hmm. Or like oh, nice. Real like isolationist gothic ambient or something. And then all the parts are a, a, a bit more noisy and it, 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 it's still, we're just amassing material and figuring out what it is mm-hmm. right now. But there's something there. There's something yeah. that makes us want to keep coming back to it. So yeah, you know, I love these. It's fucking great. Um, so it, it's just a pleasure playing together and just seeing what happens. Yeah, don't know what that's going to be yet. Yeah. But we both feel good about it. And um, yeah, I think we'd probably like to bring in some some guests on that as well. So I don't know. Watch this space on that one. Yeah, you're just waiting for for what it is to appear. Yeah, and the, yeah, exactly. And then the 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 other thing I've got going on right now is I'm I'm making a short film about all my Aeolian stuff, all the wind music. Mm-hmm. Working with um, filmmaker Tommy Husband, who's um, he's been capturing me building instruments, working at um, a incredibly characterful place called Bidston Observatory. 
on the mm. Wirral, just over from Liverpool, which is a Victorian meteorological observatory that's been repurposed as an art space. Um, so I've been on the roof there trying out wind instruments and um, yeah, he's been filming that whole process. So we're aiming for like a 15 minute film and um, it's kind of a mixture between documentary sort of mesmeric art film something or other we, we we took a look at the rushes the other day and it's a 15 it's going to be a 15 minute film we've already shot seven and a half hours of footage <laughs> so, <laughs> so like it's um it's again gonna take a series of sieves to yeah. get that uh <laughs> down to what it should be but um that's exciting me very very much brilliant uh, yeah, brilliant yeah so you've got plenty on on the cards and on the table yeah man yeah there's um yeah there's a lot on it it's it's, it's really good i feel really uh fulfilled yeah at the minute there's um i haven't had to stop and think like what am i supposed to be doing for mm-hmm. a while because there's enough things that require input you know mm-hmm. Again, it comes back to this thing we were saying a while ago in the conversation, like it's other people, like when you've got other people dependent on you or you're dependent on them, when you're in some kind of relationship with other people in work Mm -hmm. and on a thing, then something's going to happen, you know, because you're both dragging it forward, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, we're going to end with the pop quiz. We're getting, <laughs> right. I've got to stop with it. We're getting to, I mean, lengthwise, we're getting close to Morton Feldman and John Cage. A yeah, little less you interesting. Might, you might want to break this up into a couple of fucking episodes. <laughs> we'll see. Right. We'll see how the length does, man. What's your favorite record store? Uh, and I want two answers. There's a brick and mortar and then there's an online. <laughs> Well, brick and mortar would be Probe Records in Liverpool, mm-hmm. um, though I don't shop there very frequently these days because I more or less abandoned physical media. Ah, like, interesting. Yeah, I uh, I don't have any particular reverence for vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an amazing format, of course. I just have never amassed a huge vinyl collection um i stopped buying cds sometime ago i just buy everything digital yeah. these days so very occasionally i go to probe records and buy stuff for other people um you know and occasionally treat myself to something but i actually am strictly in the digital realm these days and i would say my favorite digital record store this might not count is band camp like yeah yeah for, uh, no it does count it does count i just think um you know right now it's 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 great <laughs> like, uh, and the money's going straight to the artist yeah i just i just think it's such a valuable part of of our current like community mm-hmm. and ecosystem if you want like yeah. um it's so simple and yeah it's just it's it's very pure it's very good and um 
yeah, that's where I buy all my music these days. All right. Well, with that in mind, what was the last um, what was the last record that you bought on on Bandcamp? Uh, the last record I bought on Bandcamp it's um, Bill Orcutt, Chris Corsano, and a Reed player. I can't remember her name. Hang on, I'm just about to tell you what it is. Reed player called Zoe Amber. Okay. Um, and it's called The Flower School, and it's very good. It's um, Chris Corsano is perhaps a little more subdued than I've heard him on other records. Um, he kind of lets Zoe Amber... Zoe Amber's... Um, I think it's sax or clarinet. T- seems to be the lead instrument. Um and Bill Orcutt, who is just a fantastic guitarist, I think, um, doing his thing. And it's all live, improvised, very beautifully recorded. It's really good, really good. Mm. Listen to that a few times. And then the thing I got before that was the new record by JC Leisure uh, called A Courtyard. And I wouldn't know how to classify that. Um, it's... It's like it's barely music, but in the best possible way. That's been released by uh, Cameron Stallone's of Sunara on on his label, um, and yeah, it's 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 a strange mixture of almost um, Mike Cooper esque slide guitar, very occasionally, <laughs> with like really oblique strangely mixed electronic sounds and it's just an absolute puzzle of a release but it's very intriguing can you send me that <laughs> yes i will yeah sounds great yeah it's 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 really good um but it's it's i wouldn't know how to begin comparing it to other music so yeah. i think that's a recommendation in itself absolutely absolutely uh, last book you read? Last book I read was um, it's very uncool. This it was um, for your eyes only by Ian Fleming, which I read. I was on holiday recently, and it was in the place I stayed on holiday. It's a collection of James Bond short stories. How does it hold up? Um, it's pretty abhorrently sexist. And fairly, <laughs> fairly racist. Oh, so gosh. it left a a bit of a bad taste in the mouth, to be honest. Um, the best bits are where it's basically just like the author's intimate knowledge about um, different cocktails kind of framed as a story. So, yeah, right. I mean, it's yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, to be honest. It's a posh twat. Uh, writing about a fictional knobhead, basically. <laughs> yeah. Do you know that uh, Alan Dulles from the CIA had several meetings with Ian Fleming? The CIA tried to develop, their R&D section tried to develop some of the um, the unique weapons that Q would make um, <laughs> in, in an attempt to eliminate Castro. I've heard about these 
um the knife shoe schemes. is one that they the, the knife the you know the, the switchblade at the store in the top of the shoe is one that they actually did develop did i i read many years ago that there was a plan to off castro by uh spiking his uh scuba diving gear with lsd yeah yeah that's that true was, that's that's one I, I read somewhere and there's something else about making all his hair fall out live on telly <laughs> really to discredit him like his beard was gonna fall out due to yeah. some like timed salts or something <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's another conversation. For yeah, I know, I know. Well, we'll follow that up when we next see each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was the last film you watched? Um, it was uh, Drowning by Numbers by Peter Greenaway, which I've seen at least two times before, uh, but I hadn't watched it for about five years. And uh, it was so good that even though I was watching it in my living room with two other people, I gave it a standing ovation at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's it's utterly like unbelievably good. Um very, very like obscene mm-hmm. and just incredible to be honest. I felt like I was levitating halfway through. It was so good. Uh, yeah. I can't recommend that enough. Like just doesn't often like it i've so, only yeah. seen i've only seen the cook the thief his wife and a lover um but yeah. I, that that really floored me when i watched that at university um especially yeah. especially the score which you were telling me um that there's the similar nyman pieces that are used in yeah. both films that trombone part that you were playing when we were last yeah. recorded, and i was like oh i heard it and something came over me because <laughs> i had such a visceral experience when i was watching the cook the thief his wife and i love her yeah i mean so, and it's quite a, it's a difficult film that because i think it's michael gambon the lead actor he's so obnoxious that it's like quite a grating watch yeah. It's just like, oh my god, this is knackering. Mm-hmm. But like, the the thing with Peter Greenaway is he said like, he's basically fed up of cinema, basically all being derived from text. He's like, you know, it's all from text, it's all from scripts, which come from books. You know, it's all about the word, and he's kind of interested in like cinema, uh, being inspired by like painting and mm-hmm. all the forms, which sounds kind of glib and like. You're like, yeah, fair enough, mate. But like, when you watch it, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I kind of see what you mean. Um, it's just the the sort of lushness and detail and symbolism of his compositions is something else. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite restaurant currently? <laughs> I mean, this I'm is a real Tinder date rest. question. Oh yeah, speed dating. Um, <laughs> I really there's a there's a burger place in liverpool i don't go for burgers very often but there's a burger place called free state kitchen that is absolutely fantastic so i <laughs> I, I try and go there just a couple of times a year because yeah. otherwise we're in trouble uh, yeah. that one's that one's great all right best gig you ever played um there's a few contenders. I couldn't nail it down to like best, but I think we've kind of, we've kind of covered them. You know, the first go of the Large Electric Ensemble in Nottingham at the mm. conclusion of this festival, 
thousand artists from a hundred countries. We'd been hanging out, you know, for over a week, and we uh, were the final act before the DJs on the closing night, uh, and so everyone who was at the festival piled down to the closing night and the love in the room um it also sounded amazing it was a brand it just like there's a someone filmed the whole gig uh, which is really nice but i can still watch that and feel like completely electrified by it wow. like the vibe in the room was sensational like and the the sort of feeling of like international togetherness was was very strong that night so that that that's really up there you know um and then our shows at cafe otto in january this year were fucking good to be honest so yeah i'll put those up there brilliant what's the worst gig you've ever been to worst gig i've ever been to um I don't know about whole gig, but I, I remember very early on in going to see shows when I was like 15, I can remember being stood in the crowd in the Lomax in Liverpool, uh, booing the band um, Hell is for Heroes off stage, uh, <laughs> like, who'd like gone down like an absolute stinker, like... Uh, like it was terrible for whatever reason. I can't really remember the details, but anyway, the crowd was united in their dislike of Hell is for Heroes and they were booing them so much that the singer said, if you let us do one more tune, we'll stop playing. And to which he got a pint lashed at him. <laughs> Every, everyone just booed them off. I mean, it's grim, really. I'd hate to be in that position but like at the yeah. time it was you know fairly fairly enjoyable um <laughs> but actually that did just remind me that Athenor, the improv group with steve nomali steve noble uh a few others Daniel they Sullivan. A, yeah who's a who's a friend of mine great guy and but like fuck me man they bombed in liverpool that was like absolutely awful they got booed off stage like I know Mali lashed a chair into the audience uh, and uh, <laughs> got very shirty with me in the dressing room when I told him uh, that it, he asked me how the performance was and I said it was divisive, which is, to be <laughs> honest, the sort of thing a knobhead says. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. anyway, he didn't like that. But that was that was awful and everyone agrees that was terrible. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that, but we 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 put Fat out when I was working with them when we were still promoting. We put them on a few days later at Islington Mill, and they were really good actually. Um, but they were all in agreement um, that they pulled a bit of a shocker at, at Liverpool, um, which I was really surprised because, like, I mean, Daniel O'Sullivan especially is one of these mu- musicians that I so admire and have admired since I was a, a, a you know in, in my late yeah. teens because of you know, his, his uh, proficiency at 
all 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 the instruments he touches, he's just masterful. Oh, he's he's, he's brilliant. Just, he's a lovely man as well. Um, absolutely, yeah, a, a, an amazing human being and a, a, yeah. a gentleman as well, a real gentleman. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to misquote him, but I'm sure he said to me, like, yeah, I'm glad we did that gig because I've seen how bad it can go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> something yeah. along those lines uh, yeah i think the band knew they'd done it thinker that night yeah it was <laughs> legendarily awful yeah uh what's the best gig that you've well not the best gig what's uh, i would say like what's what what have you been to recently where you've been like whoa band i really enjoyed recently was thra which is a yeah. duo from manchester andy jackson my and boy andy yeah, and I can't remember the name of his collaborator in the group. Um, Sally, I think it is, yeah. Okay, I, I apologise in advance um, because I absolutely loved their performance. They were like, the thing I really loved about them is um, that they matched guitar feedback with flute at one point during their set. And nice. those two those two sounds complement each other amazingly well but it had a bit of a had a bit of an earth thing going on a bit of a cocteau twins thing i mm-hmm. i thought they were really good that, that, yeah that's the best thing i've seen for a while the flutes think making me think of bardo pond yeah but it wasn't like that right right okay although yeah. I, I, you know bardo pond are great they are they are uh what is your favorite sound <laughs> um i think you've sort of covered this a bit because it must be you, you must dig the aeolian wind right i do i do love that um there's a sound i replay in my head over and over again and it's and i, I don't know if i've ever heard it in real life but it's kind of a sort of kevin shields-esque bend over a particular interval and right i must have heard it in real life at some point but it's this sound that i it's like a little ident that pops up in my head at certain moments and, and you're just you chasing yeah. to find it yeah it kind of goes like that but <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that and um yeah that that's like a little a little sound like little icon uh, that that pops up in my inner ear. Nice, nice. Last piece of artwork that floored you, and you could be take the interpretation of of artwork as as wide as you want. Um, I saw a Barbara Hepworth sculpture in um, Snake Maltings in Suffolk. I was I was in Suffolk recently, and I went to Snake Maltings. Um, incredible landscape of reeds undulating and brick buildings and just anyway the yeah this Barbara with piece was there and basically that it was a, almost a series of portals to look through at the landscape and it felt very ancient and modernist and very powerful and it, it, it did give me pause for thought so yeah it would be that. Wow. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Ben. Fucking hell, dude. Yeah, we've Five done a hours. long one. Five <laughs> hours. 
for the long one. Hours, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be that long. Tarkovsky but... over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stalker Park. Oh,